Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners and viewers may find the ideas and content expressed disturbing or objectionable. I'm glad you're not Ohio State because I went to... Oh, wait a minute. We have a rule, Rick. (laughs) We're so glad. That's rule number one of rotations. Um, in, In homage to J.K. Rowling, we refer to the school which shall not be mentioned. Okay, so if, you, if you're okay, so it gets too so much if, attention if you, as it is. If you have to refer to the the school that shall not be mentioned, just say the school that shall not be mentioned, and then everybody will know. I'm Todd Fredericks, assistant professor of family medicine at the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, and we're back for another episode of Rotations. I think you'll like it, and I'm going to pitch it to Nisarg Bakshi, OMS2, our host. Yes, welcome everyone uh, to another episode of Rotations, and this episode is going to be a little unique. Um, as you all know, we like to talk about all issues medical, and one thing that we wanted to talk about today was medical journalism. You know, how is information within the medical community disseminated out to people that don't have that scientific background? So we're joined today by uh, guest Rick Burke, uh, executive editor of Stat News, which is a scientific publication coming out of the Boston Globe. So we're excited to have you on. Thanks for coming, Rick. Thanks for having me. Of course. And we're joined today, of course, by Lisa Forrester, the uh, resident expert on everything. She's back again. Yeah, she kind of runs media and medicine at, at the Nexus. She's, she's the she central really is the expert on everything. of media and medicine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Thanks for yeah. joining us, Lisa. Yeah, and, a, and, a, and a trained journalist. That's right. And a trained journalist. Yes, yeah. and a trained journalist. And uh, we have Jim Phillips here as well, uh, a communication specialist joining us yeah. from the, uh, the Schoonover's College of Communication. So thanks for joining us. And a self-taught journalist. Self-taught journalist. <laughs> well, we, well, we have to have you because we don't understand anything that Mr. Burke's going to say because we're right. doctors. We're we don't understand that. journalism. Well, I, don't know, I, don't, I don't understand a whole lot about science or medicine. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, Rick, can you tell us about how you got involved in journalism? Yeah, I, I'm one of those people that just always wanted to be a journalist. When I was a, a kid, I, I was, um, started my own newspaper at home, and then in elementary school, and high school, college, et cetera, et cetera. So I've always been drawn to newspapers and journalism, and that's what I've done most of my life. And you actually used to work for the New York Times. You've worked as a White House correspondent. You worked as chief political correspondent. You know, why now did you make the switch to more of a healthcare focus within journalism? Well, well, I, um, I, as as you said, I spent um, almost thirty years at the New York Times, covering politics, running the daily news operation, doing a lot of um, uh, jobs there. I was editor of Politico um, in my last job after leaving the Times, and then, um, and then you're wondering why am I, why did I start a science and 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 health publication and I, I've asked myself that same question so, <laughs> and I wasn't joking when I said this isn't my field at the beginning um, what happened was John Henry who's the owner of the Boston Globe and the Boston Red Sox and um, was came to me uh, about two and a half years ago and said Boston is the epicenter of life sciences health medicine with all the hospitals and and we think there's so many good stories here and such a journalistic opportunity but also business opportunity to build an international national international publication that's bigger than the boston globe itself that's bigger than a regional paper would you be interested and my reaction was i've never done a startup i've never i i don't live in boston what do i know about science all the questions, but but then I couldn't help, couldn't not do it because I was so intrigued by 
the stories that were out there when I started talking to people in Kendall Square and at the hospitals, just doing a little of my own research, finding there's, there's, as you guys know, medicine and health touches so many people and there's so many stories that weren't being done. And for journalists like myself, ever since I was little, as I said, the opportunity to start and build my own national news organization from scratch was too good to pass up. How do you think scientific and healthcare news uh, is presented today in, in our media landscape, you know, before stat news was a thing? I've studied this when I embarked on this, on this job. There's, as you all know, there's hundreds, if not thousands of specialty publications in science and health. There's, there's academic publications, there's trade publications, there's consumer publications like WebMD, there's higher end of publications like the do the weigh in like the new yorker and the new york times and the wall street journal so there's a lot out there um covering different slices of this world and one one thing i realized is like is the world of science is so big and broad and deep that we could have i mean we have reporters in cities around the country but we could have you know 50 people just reporting on Kendall Square here and there'd be enough stories. There's just so much to do. So so I guess what I would say is there's a lot of coverage out there, but there's so many more stories than anyone has time or bandwidth to do. And that's where we saw an opportunity. Yeah, sure. So tell us a little bit about Stat News then. What, how do you plan on kind of tackling that lack of, like you said, all these different stories out there, nobody's talking about them. How do you guys plan on tackling all of that? Oh, in November we'll be two years old and we have, we've established a pretty decent national audience. We have over two million unique visitors a month. Um, we have tens of thousands of people reading our, our newsletters every day. We have, I think like 15 newsletters. Our flagship is morning rounds that comes at 6 a.m. every morning that's sort of a um and these are all free there it's sort of a snapshot of what you need to know in health and science that you can't get anywhere else every morning and so we see ourselves as filling a void that was there of as i said there was there were high-end publications like the, the times and the new yorker but they're not weighing in every day on science in a in a in a in a very newsy way and then you have the on the other end the more specialized publications we see what we're doing is is provocative interesting high level journalism that you get every day so what mm -hmm. we do uh, probably an average of 15 stories a day not including our newsletters we do big investigative projects we jump on the news we do features we do narratives about scientific discoveries. Um, we're very, we have a very strong uh, multimedia video operation. We're based in Boston because as we see, we see as John Henry, our founder saw this as, as the epicenter but of, of this news, but we have reporters in Washington, Cleveland, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Atlanta, um, New York, and so we see this as a national story. We've sent reporters to Tahiti following Zika. We've sent reporters to Brazil. We've sent reporters to um, Cuba to write about medicine there. So 
we, we know no bounds in terms mm -hmm. of uh, going after big stories. Yeah, and, and this is something we were talking about, too. And, and ever since we scheduled this interview, I've been reading a lot of stat news. And, um, you know, there's stories just covering a, a huge range of topics. So I guess, you know, my question is, who exactly is your target audience? Like, who do you hope to reach out to specifically? Um, the four of you. <laughs> So I we have our own day job, dude. I mean, we're, 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 we're trying to reach out to you. That's the whole point of it. No, our, our audience is, is, A, people who love science and medicine and work in those fields. But there are also, also people like me, frankly, who like a good story, who like, as you know, these stories, that, you know, the gene editing stories, what's going on in science and medicine is touches every living person in this world. So so I, I don't see any of this off limits to, to anyone. And some of our stories are more interest to industry people or certain audiences, but but we're trying to frankly do it all. We're trying to be accessible to a big, broad, general audience. And my mm -hmm. ideal stat story is a story where if you're, say you're in biotech and we're doing a biotech story, if, if you're in the industry, it's not going to talk down to you, um, but it will. You'll learn something, and it will be credible and knowing, but also be written in a way that's not boring and narrow mm -hmm. and um, inaccessible. And the way we're we're doing this is is we hired from the outset some of the best known science journalists in the country. Sharon Bagley is like is amazing and people came from around the country to Sharon Bagley is our senior science reporter Helen Branswell there's no one better covering infectious disease and public health she came to us from Canada and moved here to Boston we have Carl Zimmer writing for us we just have a whole range we have really smart creative people they're very collaborative and all very talented so my fear starting out was this is this is, as you you all know, this is complicated, tricky uh, territory sometimes, and you want to get it right, and you don't want to misinterpret or hype anything, but you also want to make the stories accessible and interesting, mm -hmm. and urgent. So, so I was worried in my pushing for great journalism. Like, what if we end up cutting corners, or I, I don't want our credibility to suffer? And to my great uh, relief and and frankly pride, we've never not our journalism has never been questioned or our mm -hmm. facts and our stories. We've done thousands and thousands of stories, and I think it's a testament just to hiring people who know what they're doing. And I have read a lot of those stories, and they they do a great job, like you said, of of making it interesting, accurate and accessible. Um, so I was wondering, you know, if, if we could get our, our journalists on the panel here, their opinion on how, how do you achieve that? How do you uh, approach a topic that's a little more complex, a little bit tougher for the layperson to understand, but still keep it uh, accessible? Uh, there, there is so much information out, out there from different sources. I think for the public to try to navigate that and make sense of it and figure out what's true, what's not true, what to trust, what not to trust. And so I think of a publication like yours um, coming on the scene and how do you make 
build that trust with an audience, say, no, we actually have it right. We're asking the right questions. We're doing the background research that needs to be done. You can trust us, especially right now in this era when uh, journalism is being attacked, the integrity of reporters, um, whether or not they're telling the truth. And then you do have a lot of politics now stacked onto healthcare, right? Mm-hmm. And it's all mixed up. And so it becomes very politicized now as well. So I'm wondering how you navigate that and your reporters navigate that and build your audience. Um, no, that's a good question, Lisa. I think what um, I think the key to all of it is um, having people that have already have to bring with them an audience that already are trusted for their work. And I think that's what we we did with the the known people that we hired right away and right away from the very start we've had we had people like atul gawande tweeting us and saying he loves stad and a lot of sort of influential people in science and medicine have been very supportive from the start and i have to say it's been a nice surprise because i didn't expect that and really from day one and again it's a testament to the the people that we've hired. So we didn't, we, we've moved pretty fast. And I think in, in terms of, and I think a good example of that is, um, and especially in this political atmosphere right now is I asked uh, Sharon Bagley to write, to, to tackle questions about the president's mental health early on. And, um, and this is something when I, you know, in my years of covering presidents and and Washington, I would never have even thought about going there because it's a touchy, tricky, politicized, sensitive thing. And what do we know? We're not it's like we're not in the room. We're not in, inside the head of the president. Nevertheless, I thought it was important for us to put this all in context. And so Sharon wrote. Uh, she's written about four stories on on this, but we and we've called it inside uh, or state of state of Trump's mind is the name of the series. And the first one we did right after his inauguration, I was very nervous because I thought we talked to psychiatrists, we talked to Republicans, Democrats, and I was nervous about how we would look even talking about Trump's mental health. And the reaction was really positive from a lot of quarters. I mean, I'm sh- there were some people that were critical of us even writing about that subject. But I think what I what I saw us doing was a reader service and taking on this question in not a hyped way, but a very sciencey way, giving the proper context, showing the reporting. And we've kept doing that. And our most popular piece ever that we've done was a month or so ago, Sharon did an analysis of Trump's linguistic uh, shifts over the years. And it was a very newsy piece. People said Stat was brave to take this on. It wasn't bravery. Like you just look at, um, it, it was a very deep, deeply reported story where you look at his speech patterns from 20 years ago and now, and it's, it's you can't refute that something has changed. You don't, we don't know exactly why is it, is it dementia? Is it because he's tired? Is it, you know, we, we can't, we don't know exactly, but we can at least lay out the shift. So I think when you have a credible journalist writing about these things, 
um, everything is fair game. Yeah, and you do have a significant pressure on you because the Boston Globe has a reputation for doing deep and long-term investigations that are received not in- uncontroversially, but also in a way that is recognized as thorough and uh, thoughtful. And I wonder how much that played into the establishment of STAT going into that culture, because I mean, the Globe is known for this, right? So how much did that affect you coming in about maintaining the the integrity of what the Boston Globe is known for in terms of this process of, of more thorough and lengthy investigation that's more detailed? Well, I, I think uh, the affiliation with the Globe gave us credibility from day one because back before anyone knew what STAT was, and a lot of people still don't know what STAT is, you know, we, we used to say we're the, the new life sciences publication uh, owned by the Boston Globe, Boston Globe Media. So that gave us a certain credibility that the Globe has. But um, and it's enabled us to build out from there. But I didn't feel any pressure. Um, I felt like it, it was a benefit. And, mm. and, and we're, just so you know how we work, we're, we're a separate independent company and editorial and business organization from the globe. So we're the same owner, but we're like a, a little younger sister publication where they, they use our pieces if they want to. And we, we pitch them our, and we hope they do because it gives us, it's nice to have it in the globe and get the traffic and everything. But we, we run pretty independently. We've done a, a couple projects together, but, um, but it's, it's just, a, it's a different, uh, it's, it, um, it's a different kind of uh, animal. But that branding does follow. Have you had feedback from the Boston Globe proper back on the product and, and how that is received? Does it, does it fit within the culture of the Boston Globe writ large? Uh, they feel that way, the editorial staff there? Or do they pay much attention to it, Rick? I, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm one that knows hmm. um, that I could speak for them. I think, hmm. I think um, the fact that they run a significant amount of our stories hmm. is a good sign that hmm. they like what we do and, and find us credible. So I think we have a good working relationship and, um, and we respect each other. Um, Rick, one of the things I was surprised about when I looked at the website was just how robust your staff is. Um, a lot of publications are laying people off. I have some friends who were just laid off. And, I mean, is health where the money is or what's happening? <laughs> Do, did you figure out the magic formula for being uh, making journalism work now? No, I mean, that we're hoping to figure out the magic formula. We haven't yet. We're not profitable yet, but we're... Um, we're trying, we're trying to be self, our aim is to be self-sustaining and to show that there is, um, that there is a potential to, to have a big staff and do great journalism that people will pay for. And I think we've, we've made great strides in terms of getting sponsors for our, our content and we're doing some events and our big new push that I, where I really see the revenue coming is last December, we started a subscription service called Stat Plus for hmm. people focused more on biotech and, um, and pharma. And that's more sort of contrary to what I was saying about accessible stories for everyone. Those stories are a little more narrowly focused on those industries. And they're tough stories. They're not. It's not like puffery by any means. 
but but the intention is people will pay a, an annual subscription to get it's like 15% more than they get on the site and it's focused on those industries and people are we just hired this week our new um, a new addition to that group Adam Fierstein who's covered biotech and Wall Street for the street for for I think decades and he's the best known um, reporter covering biotech and 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 the um, and Wall Street so people are ever since he came last week we've had our best week in terms of people signing up for stat plus because um, and it's very encouraging because people see that people are willing to pay for news they can't get anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you mentioned in another interview, actually, you uh, said that you kind of see your role now as a, a journalistic watchdog over these kind of industries. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Right. We've done a lot of, of um, piece, as much as we're trying to get sponsors and advertising, our news operation is... Um, unassailably aggressive in questioning and taking on industry and and figures in the world of science and medicine and we we sued uh, Purdue Pharmaceuticals to get some um, documents that have been sealed about their 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 um, leadership and we've won we spent tens of thousands of dollars to uh, this case in, in against Purdue in Kentucky, and there's another hearing this Monday on that case. And so far, it looks like we're the rulings have been in our favor. So we've taken on Purdue Pharmaceuticals. We've written very uh, deep investigations of uh, Google's life sciences arm, Verily, which um, had some real internal problems, and we've spent months covering that. We've written, uh, we did a big investigation when we launched about clinicaltrials.gov uh, and all the problems, um, how, how many of the leading academic institutions and hospitals and cancer centers weren't following the law and making their clinical trials public. Hmm. Um, and that, and we, we, we've written about investigations of Dr. Soon Chong, the, um, who's been sort of a huckster scientist who's profited off universities and consumers and has some very questionable practices um, as unveiled in our coverage. So we've been, so all of that, those sorts of stories are sort of watchdog journalism mm -hmm. and being, being uh, fair but tough on, on the industry. I'm interested. You mentioned Google. Uh, do you see your role as being a media watchdog as well, looking at what other people are doing, how reliable they are? I don't know if we're, we're reporting sort of directly on who's doing well or who isn't, or, or but I think we we approach stories. Uh, I, I hope that we approach stories in a way that um, shows credibility and fairness and um, and if someone, certainly if someone misreports something that's important in our world or um, we'll find a way to take note of it. Sure. And, and your personal background is, is more in investigative journalism as well. So, you know, I was just curious, how do you 
like is the approach when you're looking at a, a medical story or one of the stories that you mentioned, is that any different than your approach um, to investigating a politician, for example, or some sort of no, that's, bill? That's a good question. I think since my whole background is, is more steeped in politics, is, as you suggested, and, and my staff probably rolls their eyes because every story <laughs> on science medicine, I'm looking for like the Trump angle or the, the political angle. But, but I think sort of politics and human relationships pervades all of science, as you all know, and, and, and I think it's our obligation to try to uncover that. So what I see myself bringing to the table at STAT is I, I, I come at it as a generalist who doesn't know this world, and I'll say, I'll, I'll ask reporters like, who's the most important scientist in the world? Well, let's do a story on that person and explain why. Like, and it'll lead to really good stories. And so I'll ask those questions and not, uh, and, and if the reporters who know much more about this world can come up with a better, um, a better construct or approach, all the better. And one of the questions that you remember with the whole CRISPR patent fight and Eric Lander came out uh, at the Broad Institute with a very, um, with his own version of events of his role in the Broad's role in, in the CRISPR uh, discovery. And, and it was very controversial. And I said, let's do a, let's do a piece on, on Lander and what he's thought of in the scientific establishment. And I don't think he liked that story that we did that. But it was there to be done, and it got a lot of attention. It was a totally fair story. We went over, bent over backwards to be fair. But I, I think some of these major scientists, I don't think, are as used to the journalistic scrutiny that major figures in other areas of civic life and politics and government get. And I think um, they should be open to that. And there's a there's definite confirmation bias, personal as well, in in many people who found reputation in science and gained notoriety to the point where, you know, hey, I, I write a paper and I got a buddy over here at this journal. I'm pretty assured I'm going to get it published. Um, and I'm a big light of truth uh, cleanses things, man. I mean, it, it, we should be used to it. And if you've got, you know, if you're doing good work and and you're truly objective, you should be able to say, I just don't know that, or this isn't panning out the way we want to. But I just think there's a lot of pressure. Something, Jim, when I talked about Jim earlier, I mean, there are areas of science where I know people are pressured because of their grants to go a certain direction. Um, And that raises a whole different question that's not germane necessarily here, but about how we fund research and how we look at research, and are we really willing to be skeptical and objective and say, look, we spent a lot of money on this, and it was a non-starter. Well, I think, too, that there's probably empirical evidence to suggest that fraud in science or just cooking numbers or or file drawer problems may be more prevalent in medical types of research than mm-hmm. other places, simply because the stakes are so high money-wise, potentially, in some cases. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I, I agree. I think there's... Uh a lot of pressure on researchers to be more publicly accessible and out there. They've kind of operated as maybe superstars within their own fields, but now universities and others are putting press releases out. And even if you look at the headlines of the press releases, right, they're amping up some of the findings as a way to try to uh, draw attention 
and because there's so much competition in gaining like like you're saying, there's a lot of news happening, a lot of things happening and findings and studies, and they want to get the attention. And in, all, in all fairness, too, to these people, they're highly skilled and highly educated and highly trained in a specific field. And you put them into mm-hmm. an uncertain area like sitting in front of a Boston Globe journalist who's going to ask them maybe sort of more general questions. And and it could probably be a little bit unnerving for them to say, I, I, I'd rather be in my lab or I'd rather be in my office where I can talk to my colleagues and we can have high-level discussions about pentaquarks and, and not <laughs> actually have it's to entertain it. Can you explain to us what quantum mechanics is? Because we don't even know what that means. I mean, I do appreciate that aspect, but I don't. I, what, what Rick is saying about, you know, look, if you're a scientist and you're getting public funding, you should be prepared or at least have a public affairs person ready to help you be prepared to answer questions that the public who's funding you might want to ask, even if it seems relatively trivial. Because mm-hmm. it's actually the trivial questions which are the most interesting, I think. We tend to think of them as, 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 as pedestrian, but they're what most people are probably going to ask and want to be interested in. What you're all saying, I, I think we're here to, in a, in a good way, to celebrate science and yeah. to to... Um, and I and I think as, as you all were saying, it's like shedding light on what what scientists are doing and on the on that world is really important. But we have to do it in a in a in a fair-minded but tough-minded way. And w- w- one thing that I thought was really interesting, we've we've had people write a lot about what it's like to be a doctor and what it's like and and to be in medical school and the and the match program and the all that the personality stuff is really important i've learned a lot just from our we have one columnist that writes this officer charts column about her whole experience learning to be a doctor and i've learned so much about Hmm. how tough it is and what it's like and what you're experiencing and that's just one person but there's so many stories out there that kind of shed light on this world and how hard it is to be a scientist and how you can spend years um, and come up with nothing and it's and the fighting over funding and everything it's but that's why when you see the, the charlatans come and take money away and and sell the public a bill of goods it's it's our obligation to reveal that so maybe i just have it just as a, as a side thing i just thought maybe for our, our research people maybe what we should do is as soon as you get your first half a million or larger nih grant you should automatically have to accept a non-stem journalism intern with you that has to stay in your lab and 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 press you on things like explain this to me explain this to me so that <laughs> so they get conditioned to explaining themselves so when rick shows up with his crew they're ready to go they're like yeah i've been through this before i know what to do i can answer these questions well, there's a lot of there's an increased emphasis on dissemination and translation, right, with the mm-hmm. research. And they're really wanting that to get out more because I've seen cases, right, where you, you're pulling in the dollars, you're pulling in the money, you do all this research, and then you never share it with anyone. Yeah. And so I think there have been steps taken to try to improve that. I don't know how successful it's been. Um, and I, you're right, I don't think a lot of the researchers are ready to answer those questions. They have never... They've never not, been trained to. They've not been trained. They don't see and that never as had a role. To. I'm a researcher. I'm not a... PR person. <laughs> I'm not here to answer questions. I'm just here to work in my lab or do what I, you know, the research. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a little complex. Rick, we got to go to second segment. You have a closing comment real quick. I just, let's just keep talking. I, it's, this is fun. Okay. We'll keep talking. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this rotation's for this week and, uh, we'll catch you in the second uh, half of, uh, Rick Burke at the Boston Globe's, uh, interview. 
Rotations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science and is part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so that their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. Rotations is hosted by Nisarg Bakshi, produced by Todd Fredericks, audio engineered by Kyle Snyder, and video edited by Brian Plow. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve all rights to content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators, and you must cite Rotations as a source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by emailing us at rotationspodcast at gmail.com, tweeting us at rotationspcast, or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations.